I did notice that even when they had the money or the infrastructure to put telehealth at the forefront for their patients, they often didn't invest in doing that because the reimbursement was just not worth it. So the same exam uh, in person was reimbursed at a higher rate than the same exam via telehealth. You know, to an extent that makes sense, you know, you're using less facility costs, um, but it was a, a big barrier to getting providers to make telehealth available. Hello and welcome to Hymnscast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. We've been talking a lot on this podcast and in our series, The Virtual Care Paradigm, about telehealth regulation, reimbursement, and changes under COVID. Today, we're going to zoom in on the idea of telehealth across borders and talk about how telehealth regulation is still constrained today by where you live, where your provider lives. Um, and we also may talk a little more broadly about the current state of regulations, which, as we know, is always changing. Um, here to join me in this conversation uh, and provide her expertise is Heather Leva, an associate at Buchanan Ingersoll Rooney, who focuses uh, her practice on uh, some of these areas. <laughs> Heather, tell, tell me a little bit about the specific focus of, of your work at, at Buchanan. Sure. Well, first, thank you for having me. I'm happy to chat about all these issues with you. Um, at Buchanan, you know, we have a pretty much a full healthcare service. So if you're a healthcare client, we can kind of run the gamut of all your different needs. I specifically work on um, transactions in the healthcare space as well as regulatory compliance. Um, and regulatory compliance can span anything related to telehealth from licensure to reimbursement, to privacy issues, as you mentioned, and other uh, barriers that might affect telehealth services, as well as other compliance issues that come up both in the telehealth space and not in the telehealth space, like proper uh, corporate structuring and and other things like that. So I'm happy to kind of touch on any of these issues with you from all different angles. So when I first sort of started covering this space and telehealth was still very young, um, State borders and licensure was a, was a huge issue. I know one thing that was happening was they were, they were trying to pass this interstate licensure compact so that you could do telemedicine across borders, but also whether you were even allowed to do you know video visit telehealth with a you know without a initial in person visit was was something that changed state by state based on state laws. I know that a lot of states a lot has changed um, as telehealth has become more commonplace. Um, but talk to me a little bit about the current state of that. Like how important it is is it, you know, where you live uh, to what your access is gonna be like and what your um, how how difficult for a provider it's gonna be to, to have a telehealth practice. Sure. So you know, while a lot of things have changed or were very different last year and maybe earlier this year due to the pandemic, um, everything still very much is specific to where you are. There are a number of states that have made things a little bit easier, but there are also a number of states that have started to or shortly will be reverting back to their original barriers. So I, I sit in Philadelphia, I'm familiar with Pennsylvania. Um, there have been, just as an example, lots of licensure flexibilities um, in Pennsylvania 
as a result of emergency declarations. But in June, our legislature voted to end the public health emergency declaration. And therefore, at the end of this month, regulatory waivers like ones related to licensure are actually supposed to expire. So some of the old rules uh, related to licensure across state boundaries are going to come back into effect. And so it really is going to depend on where you live as to what's happening. Um, Other states like Arizona and Florida have put in place permanent rules to make um, out-of-state care via telehealth a lot easier. Pennsylvania and a couple others, like I said, are going back to their old rules um, where the, the general rule before was the practice of medicine takes place where the patient is located, so the provider needs to be located in that state, even if they sit somewhere else. Yeah, or at the very least licensed in that state, right? Yeah. Right. Um, and just to put a time check on this, because I'm not entirely sure when the episode is going to air, and you mentioned to the end of this month. So we're recording this in September. Sure. So that's October 1st is that potential expiration deadline. Yes, in Pennsylvania. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what... Licensure is one big issue, right? And and I know that's that's not just an issue for people who maybe want to expand their practice, but also even before, you know, it's always been an issue for like if you're a therapist and your patient is on vacation, can you do a session with them or they're on an extended trip? So that that licensure piece is um is it's weightier than maybe people who who don't have direct experience might might realize. Um, but what are some of the other things that you think about um, when it comes to this regulation in terms of, of laws and, and things that you have to keep an eye on based on where you are? Sure. So another thing that definitely comes into play and probably for any providers that are listening might be the number one factor is reimbursement and who will pay for what and at what price. Um, so I actually started getting involved in the telehealth space before the pandemic. Um, And it was very interesting to me when I first got involved as to how few providers um, that I represented had really invested a lot in telehealth, but so much of that was really reimbursement dependent. Um, So while even if they had the infrastructure to put in place telehealth that was compliant from a HIPAA perspective, and we can definitely, you know, circle back on on HIPAA and other privacy concerns, um, I did notice that even when they had the money or the infrastructure to put telehealth at the forefront for their patients, they often didn't invest in doing that because the reimbursement was just not worth it. So the same exam uh, in person was reimbursed at a higher rate than the same exam via telehealth. You know, to an extent that makes sense, you know, you're using less facility costs, um, but it was a, a big barrier to getting providers to make telehealth available. Um, during the pandemic, there's been a lot of waivers of that from a state Medicaid perspective as one payer. Uh, same with Medicare, they've expanded actually before the pandemic, they started to expand certain things that they would pay for when provided virtually, like remote patient monitoring and some other things. There were some changes at the end of 2019. Um, And then, you know, when the pandemic hit, there were additional waivers and additional additional changes as to what could be reimbursed. And then uh, in addition to that, one thing that was very helpful during the pandemic to get providers to make telehealth available was um, there were sometimes executive orders or other declarations that required even commercial payers, so Aetna, Blue Cross, Highmark, whatever you have, 
um, to actually pay certain types of telehealth visits at the same rate as in person. So that was a huge um, plus in the telehealth expansion side. And it's gonna, we'll, we'll see where that falls once the waivers expire. I have a feeling that telehealth prices will come up a little bit higher than they used to be before the pandemic, but probably not equivalent to in, in person. Right. And that I know that's the goal for a lot of people who are sort of fighting to change these regulations is this idea of parity that, you know, mm-hmm. a visit is a visit, whether you do it on the phone, in person, or over video chat, it should pay the same so that hospitals can then make this determination based on the best patient care rather than based on price. Mm-hmm. Um, are there places where that's been achieved uh, even beyond the emergency waiver or... Yes, you know, some commercial payers are starting to make changes themselves. I mean, once the waivers expire, and again, states are kind of at all different places with this right now, just like states are at all different places with how COVID and the variant, specifically the Delta variant right now, are impacting their population. So the states are kind of at all different places. Um, but some commercial payers are starting to make some changes. I've seen some changes um, specifically in the mental health space and making some of those types of appointments more um, lucrative, I guess, for providers when they're done via telehealth. Um, that's, that's one type of appointment where you really can see where parity just makes sense. You know, while there's obvious benefits to being in person, even for a counseling session, it's one that much more easily um, converts to a virtual session versus versus a physical exam, perhaps a pre-surgical exam or something like that, which is much harder to gauge how someone is physically doing um, if you can't do a tactile in-person exam where the provider can put their hands on the patient. So I think that we'll see in some of the spaces that more easily convert to virtual care um, that the commercial payers will probably start to increase some of their rates for those things. It's really going to depend on outcomes and statistics that maybe are still in process and haven't come in yet, right? So each of these commercial payers, they're doing their algorithms and running their numbers. What is it worth it to pay for? And so the service has to be comparable and also work. You know, even if a service is comparable, if they're recognizing that there's a lot of issues or patients are not getting as good care uh, virtually, then they're not going to pay for it at a higher rate. Um, so that that's going to take a little bit more time. Maybe in the next year or so, we'll start to see some trends. Um, but from a waiver perspective, just back to where we started with this conversation, um, every state is going to be doing it differently. And once the state's waivers or requirements from a regulatory perspective for commercial payers to pay for telehealth expire, then it's really just going to be up to the commercial providers or the commercial payers. So let's, let me just bounce back to, to licensure for a minute. And then I, sure. I want to, um, is, are there, is there movement still happening sort of outside of, I mean, I know COVID sort of complicated and reset everything, but, but, you know, even before that, I know this was an issue and I know one approach was, you know, to try to solve it via these compacts to say, you know, you're, you're the licensing board for this state. I'm the licensing board for that state. We're going to make an agreement that your licensure counts for me for this purpose when telehealth is happening or something like I'm probably vastly oversimplifying, but I mean, is that still, um, is that still an effort that's underway? Um, 
is that kind of the primary way this is being tackled or are there other avenues? It, it depends on both the state and actually the specific licensing board. I mean, there are plenty of states First of all, let me just take a step back. There are multiple licensure compacts. So there's not just the physician one. There's nurses, uh, there's physical therapists, there's all different types of compacts. And the way the compacts work is is what you said. It's um, similar to if there are any lawyers out there, you know, if you're barred or licensed in one state, um, instead of having to retake all the exams and resubmit all your paperwork in every state where you want to practice, it, it essentially creates a mechanism for the state boards to talk to each other and kind of confer information to each other so that the licensing process is more simplified and you don't have to start from ground zero. Um, now, it doesn't eliminate all barriers. The compacts don't eliminate all barriers. And, and so from my perspective, you know, I actually think that they're a pretty good solution to the cross state boundaries issue because there is a benefit to having you know local control and local board enforcement particularly if a patient is harmed in some aspect if that provider you know sits in another state and never entered the current state there's going to be a lot harder from a legal perspective for the board to have enforcement authority Um, so there is a benefit to having local control and the licensure compacts just make the licensing process a little bit easier, but still afford local control because you do have to go through the compact process. Um, but I wouldn't say necessarily that it's the main process for how this is working, at least yet. I mean, it, like I said, it, it really depends on the state and the board in particular. I mean, there are a number of states where their board of nursing has voted to enter the nurse compact, but their board of medicine has not voted to enter the physician compact. Um, you know, there are states that are in the PT compact and but not the nurse. Um, and so it's kind of all over the place. And it's because each board kind of has their own opinion and process for dealing with getting into the compact and how they'll function once the compact starts. And some of that even gets political. I mean, there's different strength of lobbies in different states, depending on what, you know, is really going on in that state. Pennsylvania, again, I just bring it up as an example because I live here, but there's a ton of academic medical centers in Philadelphia and lots of hospitals throughout the state. They have lobbying efforts, hospital associations and things like that. So if there's an interest in this legislation, they have some power or at least an ability to speak with the legislatures in Har- or with the legislators in Harrisburg, and so that kind of impacts what gets entered into and what doesn't. Is this something that you know the federal government could could make a change and and legislatures you know make some kind of law that that takes this out of the realm of of every state has to figure this out. Or is this really just like very much inherently a a state issue? Sure. I mean, there was a little bit of debate about this at the beginning of the pandemic as to whether or not um, the federal government could use Section 1135, uh, which is what they used for certain regulatory waivers related to COVID as a mechanism for requiring all states to waive their licensure requirements. Um, I think that was pretty much resolved by implication in the sense that it didn't happen that way. Every state kind of had to handle it themselves. I mean, there really isn't much of a 
tie from the federal government and a constitutional perspective to interfere that kind of deep down into the regulatory sphere in each state. Um, so I think that that would take kind of a, a large overhaul from the federal perspective of some type of um, other legislative change to give them that authority. But, you know, that remains to me seen what could possibly happen in the future. Now, the federal government has other ways to try to encourage state regulatory changes versus, you know, sweeping declarations and things like that. And often it's just based on setting an example through Medicare, which is what they were doing with telehealth prior to the pandemic. Um, by starting to increase some of the things that they were paying for, they were hoping that states uh, Medicaid programs would follow and commercial plans would follow as well upon seeing you know, the results of those changes. Um, another thing that they do that kind of, I think, gets overlooked is they do have some authority over certain medical spheres. The VA is a good example. Um, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, when there was still some debate over what the federal government could waive at the state level, they made their changes related to practitioner licensure at the VA. Um, and also, you know, the VA already had some, I guess you could say a little bit more progressive in terms of licensing status rules. So they already had rules that said, as long as you're licensed in one state, you can practice in any VA facility. So they have, you know, while I, I don't think that it's very likely that the federal government could constitutionally just kind of wipe out all of the state's licensing regulatory spheres, I do think that they have other perhaps more useful ways to assert some influence. And that's just by example in some of these other spheres. That's so interesting. Yeah. Lead by example, not by fiat. That makes exactly. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> People don't like fiats. <laughs> ruffles fewer feathers. But you did mention privacy and HIPAA earlier on, and that's an area, obviously, that is a little more um, consolidated. I mean, there's there's our federal rules from from um, ONC, from on high, but also I know I've heard things like the California privacy legislation discussed in the context of healthcare, where even if there's a federal standard, there may be state standards which are higher, so you still have to worry about your individual mm-hmm. state for that. Yes, and and so that's something that often gets overlooked with HIPAA. I think HIPAA... You know, we've all signed HIPAA forms at our doctor, so it's kind of become this colloquial term. But, you know, there really is more than just HIPAA, and I think there's a lot to HIPAA. Um, and also, it looks like down the pipeline in, in the somewhat near future, there might be some changes to the HIPAA rules because they really have become very burdensome on providers in some respects. And so they are, some of the federal agencies are looking at changing some of those rules to make things a little bit easier. But, you know, that's that's kind of aside the point. Um, the general rule with HIPAA and state requirements related to privacy and how they interact with each other is that um, HIPAA stands if you're a covered entity, which means that you're a healthcare provider, plan or clearinghouse that engages in HIPAA covered transactions. Um, They're electronic transactions and, you know, it's not worth getting into the details, but it essentially means if you're billing payers and you're a healthcare provider, you're covered by HIPAA. So the rules with respect to HIPAA apply whenever you're dealing with a patient's personal health information, unless a stricter rule passed by a state applies, in which case you have to comply with both HIPAA and the stricter rule. So again, just using Pennsylvania as an example, um, Pennsylvania has an HIV Act, 
and also a Mental uh, Health Procedures Act. Um, and those two acts have set certain more stringent requirements with respect to uh, either HIV information on the one hand or certain types of behavioral health information on the other hand, specifically mainly inpatient um, and involuntary types of mental health information um, and also substance use information has special rules in Pennsylvania. So when you're dealing with that type of information for your patient, any of those three categories, you not only have to deal with the normal HIPAA standards, but you also have to look at the state law to determine whether or not you can handle information in a certain way. And usually the confines are around how you can use or disclose the information to another entity. And with telehealth in particular and other changes in the healthcare sphere related to population health management and value-based care, where we have a lot of providers starting to work with external vendors either to you know, operate a telehealth program um, and a platform that's HIPAA compliant or on the population health side to kind of run those numbers to see how well, you know, the care is working and if it's quality care versus, you know, quality assurance issues and measures that the provider can take. An issue that's come up is what information can be shared with this, those external vendors. Um, and HIPAA has some kind of broad permissions for sharing when it comes to healthcare operations, which is broadly defined and some other methods of sharing that often permit those uses and disclosures to third parties in a you know HIPAA compliant and secure way. But Pennsylvania law makes some of that very difficult. And there's other states that have similar restrictions as well. You know, that's so interesting because one thing I, I think about a lot when it comes to this conversation that we're having about, you know, state state regulations, state um, uh, licensures and, and other other kind of limiters is that, uh, you know, we talk a lot about telehealth, um, tech companies, you know, Silicon Valley companies trying to launch, you know, broad stateless sort of telehealth solutions or, or big companies like Amazon, you know, getting into possibly telehealth, like they're starting to get into pharmacy stuff right now and they have the Amazon care pilot. Um, and so this, this stance is a really potentially a big, issue um for anyone who thinks oh with telehealth i can just create you know i can create something and serve all 50 states you know your your betters and your rows and things like that um i mean i i imagine they invest a lot in in lawyers like you to figure out what they can and can't do but i mean is that something you hear that um you know people trying to to make these these theoretically scalable things work but having to deal with 50 different sets of laws Yes, it's it's definitely a barrier um, depending on the size. And, um, you know, so companies like an Amazon, they have the funds to kind of get into the space on a more broad level and other providers just don't. And, you know, we could philosophically debate whether or not that's a good thing for Amazon and things like that to keep getting bigger and other places not to be able to enter the market. Um, But it is a problem. And, you know, we have a lot of clients that come to us with good ideas and they don't necessarily know that all of these barriers exist. One one other space that's um, you know related to telehealth where we see this a lot is online prescribing. Um, so there's the typical telehealth rules. You alluded to one at the very beginning of the conversation um, that some states require an in-person evaluation before you can ever get treatment um, online. And that would include uh, you know a prescription 
particularly for controlled substances, you obviously have more confines around that. But sometimes some states generally have rules around online prescribing. And so a lot of people will come to us, a lot of clients who have, you know, maybe they're just business, just businesses right now. They're not in the health the healthcare space, but they want to get into the healthcare space. Um, Or maybe they're in the healthcare space, but they've never really entered the pharmacy prescribing world Um, that they just think that they have this great model. You know, we've developed this good platform and we want to expand everywhere. And we want to base the model on some of the things you see, like some of the websites um, that you might see advertised on TV for, you know, men with ED and, and hair loss issues where they can just go on. They never have to go in person and be embarrassed. They can just do this all online. But if you look at the fine print on all of those websites, they often say, you know, we do not provide this service to people who live in X state. Or if you live in X state, you have to do this, this, and this before we can provide services to you. And that's because in each state, there sometimes are particular barriers that, you know, either prohibit the service or require them to treat that state differently. And so ultimately, it often ends with our clients avoiding a state until they see how successful the model that they're proposing is, um, or maybe not doing something altogether if they had a geographic region that was in mind that's impacted. Um, And so, you know, that stuff is always changing and there's always gonna be, you know, rules that make things a little bit easier or harder, but that's definitely something that we've seen. Yeah, especially if you're talking about something like opioid prescription, or if you're talking about medical abortions, obviously there's gonna be a lot of state laws that are gonna get in your way. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. It, it, on that note, is there anything else we haven't talked about beyond licensure, prescription, reimbursement, and privacy? At any other um, kind of sticking points on the state level? Yeah. You know, there's one thing that kind of always gets missed that I always like to bring up. Um, and, you know, it's just something that's not very obvious to people because if you've never heard of the concept, you, you wouldn't know to ask. But Um, I think it's 39 states at this point enforce what's called the corporate practice of medicine prohibition, uh, which essentially means that a corporate business that's not either licensed as a healthcare entity or specifically set up to be a healthcare entity, meaning that it's, uh, you know, either licensed by or controlled by licensed people, um, cannot employ or contract with providers to render healthcare services. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's an interesting thing. The genesis of it was, you know, you don't want a general business corporation that has the underlying, um, you know, purpose of increasing their bottom line to be running healthcare decisions. So again, in Pennsylvania, you know, there was an earlier decision maybe about 100 years ago, I can't remember the exact date, where um, the corporate practice of medicine prohibition was founded, which essentially said that a general business corporation could not employ optometrists to give exams at the storefront. You know, the corporation had thought that would be a good idea. They could give exams, you know, they could maybe sell glasses afterward and it would be a good full service. Um, But the, you know, the court said that because the general business corporation was not, you know, run by licensed professionals, that money bottom line incentive could get in the way of patient care. So that's no longer permitted. So when you're structuring entities that employ or contract with clinicians to provide care, you have to do so compliantly with that state's law. You know, in Pennsylvania, it might mean that you have to perform or 
uh, to incorporate a professional corporation that is owned by all licensed professionals that provide that type of service. Um, you know, in another state, if you uh, register your entity with the particular health board, that might be sufficient. But in every state where you want to provide telehealth services, it's another thing to look at to make sure that you're doing it compliantly with the people that you know are providing the care on your telehealth platform in that particular state to make sure that they're also properly employed. Um, and because the worst case scenario is in some states there have been court cases that have found that if you're not properly incorporated, then you're practicing medicine improperly and therefore you're not entitled to any reimbursement you've received. And so you might have to pay back all your reimbursement to whatever plaintiff insurance company brought the suit upon discovering that you were improperly incorporated. Wow. That's like super duper interesting um, to me. And I'd never heard of that either. Um, It does make, it does remind me of um, one of the big cases that I, that I covered early on um that it was a a supreme court case about teeth whitening um and and it was the 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 doc the dental board had said that these mall kiosk teeth whiteners were you know were not um they they couldn't operate and I, I think it was may have been for a similar reason they weren't like they were too much of a per, uh, for profit or whatever um but they actually sued them and said it was is anti-competitive because the state medical board or dental board that was making the decision was benefiting um monetarily from the decision that they were making um so so it got into trust law <laughs> at that point um, that's that's very interesting. I actually am not aware of that case. I'll have to go look it up. But yeah, antitrust is creeping into the healthcare space a lot. You know, there's a lot of mergers and acquisitions going on right now. Um, things that were halted during COVID picking back up, and then just also consolidation in the market generally. Telehealth, you know, is not escaping that because a lot of the types of practitioners that are being acquired right now are things like physician groups or dental groups. Um, physical therapy groups that are being acquired either by private equity or into health systems. So, you know, there's just more and more consolidation and more and more of that bleeds into antitrust review by the FTC, you know, Hart Scott Rodino filings or things that we think about on transactions. Um, Yeah, so it's it kind of all comes full circle at some point. But also the law that you just described, or the, the laws, um, the category of laws that you just described. You know, if I'm a if I'm a, a telehealth company acquiring a different telehealth company, and my state doesn't have a corporate practice of medicine law, um, and the the company that I or it does, and the company that I acquired didn't, then you know suddenly they I might have to change how I do business. Exactly, you might have to set up a separate corporation in the other state. And, you know, there are all sorts of, you know, ways that you can kind of overcome the corporate practice of medicine prohibition and create a larger business enterprise. It just takes a little bit of a convoluted corporate structure, but you're correct. You know, you could purchase something in another state and realize that the way you do business at home isn't going to work there. And now you have an additional hurdle to kind of get things rolling in that new state. So besides looking out for all these things we've talked about, um, do you have any other general advice for, um, you know, folks who are, um, you know, looking to, to, um, take more of their care virtual and possibly, you know, operate across state lines in different ways, um, for making sure that they're staying on the right side of, of all this stuff? You know, one of the best ways is just to 
for be aware of these issues so that you're not kind of putting the heart or the cart before the horse and and jumping into something that sounds good uh you know without kind of checking all your bases but you know i will say as much as you know we're lawyers and we nitpick at things and we are overly concerned about keeping everything compliant because that's our job you know telehealth really has increased and i would say to kind of not let a lot of these issues be a barrier to having discussions you know particularly when it comes to things like clinical affiliations um, and other things like that that can increase access to care for your patients, there often are ways that things can be figured out. Um, If you're looking at affiliating with a larger provider and there's going to be licensure impacts for your clinicians, that might be something that you might be able to negotiate in the deal that they'll assist with some of those costs to get your providers licensed in additional states. There are a lot of providers now, individual clinicians and that are, you know, licensed in all 50 states or in, you know, 15 or 20 states, just depending on, you know, what their employer does, how active their employer is in the telehealth space. You know, there are ways to kind of figure these things out. Um, and, you know, we're also still seeing what's going to happen in terms of telehealth's popularity. It obviously has declined since 2020 because there are certain things that people want to be receiving in person, right? Um, But then on the flip side, it is up 38%, I believe. That's the most recent statistic I've read uh, since before the pandemic. So it doesn't seem that everyone switched only for the pandemic. So there's going to be more demand for virtual care, but it's also not going to be everything like it was last year. Um, So those are just two things to keep in mind. Keep an eye on the market um, and, and just what your patients are actually demanding. But then also don't get you know, too bogged down in the regulatory stuff in terms of having discussions with potential partners, um, because there usually are ways from a regulatory perspective that things can be worked out. You can you can create a new entity if you have a corporate practice of medicine issue. There's there's all sorts of ways that you can look at things and try to find the silver lining and maybe just revamp your original idea to make it compliant. Well, thank you so much, Heather. This has been really fascinating. Um, endless, endless minutiae and, and silos. Um, and it's, it's more complicated than, than people realize, but you're right. There is where there's a will, there's a way. And, and you can sure. work your way around this. Um, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a, a great conversation. Thank you all as always for listening, for tuning in. Um, please, you know, like subscribe, tell a friend, check out our show notes for some links to some stories we've written related to this topic. And until next time, keep innovating, keep being a healthcare change maker.